Today's Bible passage concerns itself with the deepest human need, the thing that you need more than anything else in the world. And you and I, we're often not very good at diagnosing our own issues. We think some of our biggest issues have to do with our relationships with one another. Whereas the book of Romans, Paul's big message in this book is the biggest need the human race has is not our relationships with one another. It's actually our relationship with God. Because everything else flows out of that. The word the Bible uses, the word justification. or We might use the word approval. We are all of us longing for approval. We want to be able to be approved by the people around us. Well, Paul's message is, actually, until you're approved by God, until you know that you're forgiven by God, all the other approvals in your life um, won't happen in the way that you want to. Actually, the deepest need that you and I have is for approval before God. So let's read together from Romans chapter 4. What then should we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had had before he was circumcised. This is God's word. And there's a lot of also the word of circumcision. (laughs) which is not a word you expect to hear lots in your life, and in any one Sunday, there it is. A lot of times we've talked about circumcision. And you might be forgiven for thinking circumcision is a big part of the Christian faith. Um, Actually, Paul's point is the opposite. That circumcision, an outward display, we might put it like this, an outward or physical display of piety or morality or godliness, Paul would say, is not the thing that approves you before God. We'll come on to that in a bit. (laughs) Now, once upon a time, there was a frog who accidentally fell into a pail of milk. And scrabbling and paddling and trying as he might, he couldn't make his way out of the pail of milk. And so he paddled and he paddled and he paddled and he paddled. And he paddled so long and so hard that eventually the milk curdled and turned into butter and the frog climbed out of the pail of milk. The fundamental message of most religions in the world and the fundamental message that a lot of people think underpins Christianity is this. Paddle harder. Try harder. Keep 
trying, just keep swimming and things will get resolved. And actually, in every religious system or non-religious system, your, uh, your need to try hard and paddle hard is the message that comes out that this is how you get approved. This is how you get justified, if you like. You need to be nicer. You need to be kinder. You must recycle more. Um, you need to stop using those plastic items from now on. You need to do this. You need to do that. And once you've done those things for long enough, you will be approved by people around you. Or we might say, if you want approval before God, you need to read the Bible regularly. You need to put down Harry Potter and just read the Bible. You need to put down this book and that, but you need to pray more. You need to attend church more. You need to take communion more. You need to try and try and try and try and try. And when you paddled long enough and hard enough, the milk that you find yourself stuck in will curdle and turn to butter and you'll be free. That is not the message of Christianity. That is not the message that Paul is wanting to drive to them. This is what he says. What then shall we say, very first verse, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified or approved before God by works, or we might say if Abraham was approved by paddling, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. Last week, we used the metaphor of the, um, of the fireworks last week in Seaford. And we, we said, let's gather like good Seafordians together in the cold and the dark of chapter 3 and gather and huddle close together like emperor penguins, hoping and longing that light of the fireworks or the light of the gospel will come. And we gathered close and we felt the darkness of chapter 3 get under our bones. And as, in chapter 3, as we read last week, Paul lays out uh, a damning case of the condition of the human race. He said, no one is righteous, it says. Not even one. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. On and on and on. Paul quotes from 10 different Bible verses to make the case. Every human being who's ever lived stands condemned before God. And so we gathered together in that dark and the cold because we knew well, we titled the sermon last week, I Like Big Butts and I Cannot Lie. And the reason for that was because in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We gathered together in the dark and the cold, and we realized in that place that although we have no hope in and of ourselves, the whole message of Christianity is that God has stepped into human history and has offered forgiveness, has offered justification or approval before him as a gift. So that God is both just, he upholds the law, and he's the justifier. God is the one who both upholds the perfect law and does no wrong, and also justifies ungodly, condemned criminals, sinful people like you and me. How does he do that? He does that by punishing Jesus. Jesus bearing in himself as a perfect person, as God in the flesh, bearing in himself the weight of your sin. He, in order that by faith in Jesus, we can be justified or approved of before God. That was, that's the heart of Christianity. That was the, the hinge on which the whole book starts to turn now. And what Paul does in chapter 4 
is having reasoned with them according to the Bible, he then reasons with them according to history, and namely according to, by citing some of the heroes of their faith. And if you want to win a case with someone, you need to pick multiple reasoning styles, don't you? You reason with them perhaps through the sciences, using your rationality, explaining whatever it is you want to make the case for. But then if you want to win as well, or if you really want to prove your point, you cite some examples that carry weight and authority with the people you're talking to. So in, in politics, particularly around the whole discussion to do with Brexit, both sides want to claim Winston Churchill as their forebear. Winston Churchill would approve of what it is I'm saying. I'm quoting the authority that us Englishmen approve of, Winston Churchill. Or if you're American, you say, oh, what we're doing is in line with the original vision of the founding fathers. You quote the authority source of the founding fathers. What Paul's doing is, is wanting to appeal to the church by quoting an authority source. Just as an aside... It's worth pointing out here that in the Bible, faith is, n is never just thrust upon someone in a way that tells them to stop thinking and just believe. The word for faith in the original actually is a word that's very similar to the word for knowledge. And here's an interesting question. How do you know the things that you know? Don't know if you've ever thought about that. How do you know the things that you know? Throughout Christian tradition, the point has been made that you and I know things as a result of a few different ways of thinking. You know things, stay with me, through rationality on the one hand, through reasoned arguing, or through science you might say, through breaking the world down and understanding it, exploring it. You know things through rationality. Uh, and that's, you know, Paul reasons in a rational way in this book. But you also know things as a result of experiences that you have. I know that I'm loved because of an experience, perhaps. Or I know I'm in love because of an experience, perhaps. Another way that you know things is through what God reveals to us in the Bible. We know something to be true because the Bible says it's true. And lastly, the fourth way that we know things is through traditions of a society and a people. Our history, institutions like marriage, teach us things. All that to say, the Bible doesn't just doesn't say, stop asking questions and just believe. It doesn't. It says, let me convince you through rationality. Let me convince you through the Bible. Let me convince you through history. And let me convince you through the experience of knowing God for yourself. So that all of those aspects of being human align in, what it, in what's called belief. Now, the things that you believe, that's true of everything you believe, not just religious belief. Back to the text, though. Because what I want us to do, if last week we gathered in the cold and we waited for some light of the gospel. I want us this week to take a trip down the, the river of history and to go on like a river safari. You know, so we're all going to get into a little canoe, and we're just going to stop at four very quick places along the river of history, and we're going to explore what that teaches us to make the point that Paul's trying to make. The first stop, the first destination, if you like, is all the way back here, with the life and story of Abraham in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 12 onwards. And that's what Paul does. I'll get back into the light, because um, I'd hate for you to not be able to see what I'm saying. Um, in verse 3, what does the Scripture say? 
Abraham believed God. Oh, no, sorry, back up. Verse 1, what can we say according to Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So he says, right back in history, what are we saying? Surely, I mean, Abraham, as a man, as a historical figure, um, how much I did the stats on this, 4.1 billion people on the planet out of a population of how many? 7 billion, I think. So over 50% of the people on the planet claim Abraham as their spiritual forefather. So Jews, Christians, and Muslims all say it all began with Abraham. So Abraham's a goodie in religious people's minds. He's someone who we can say he was approved by God. And if Abraham got it right, then we should listen to Abraham and we should learn from him. I better check on the time, so I don't want to get carried away. There's a lot we could say about Abraham. It's very exciting. So Abraham... Look at, let's consider Abraham's life for a little bit. Back here in our river canoe, we're considering the life of Abraham. Abraham grew up worshipping a moon god, not the god of heaven, worshipping a moon god. Abraham was told by God, leave your family and go. And he leaves most of his family, but keeps his, his cousin or his nephew Lot with him. By the, and then, he, and then he, God tells Abraham, go to the land of Canaan. But Abraham gets a little bit scared because there's a famine, and so he goes to Egypt instead of Canaan because he's worried that God won't provide. So, so far, Abraham hasn't got very good religious potential because he's worshipping the moon god. He's not obeying God as he's supposed to, and he's driven by fear. Well, when Abraham goes to Egypt, things get worse because um, Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, took a, like, took a fancying for his wife, Sarah. And so, rather than standing up for his wife... And saying, back off, Pharaoh, he says, oh, she's just my sister. You can have her in your harem. Like, that is bad. I don't, I don't care what your value system is as a husband. That's not an appropriate way to behave. So Abraham has not got a lot going for him. He's in debt. He's, the Bible's word for it, is sinning, disobeying God. And yet, Abraham is the forefather of over half the population of the world's religious people. So what did he do? What did Abraham do to clean up his act? Because whatever he did, we can learn from. Because we need to clean up our act. Did he clean up his act by working hard to get his way out of debt? I mean, if you've ever been in debt, you know to get out of debt is a slow, long graft. First time I got a full-time job, I was so excited. I went out and got a credit card and maxed it out. I was like, I've got loads of money. And then I spent the next year and a half trying to get myself out of that mess. It's a slow graft, getting yourself out of debt. But is that what Abraham did? Nevertheless, slowly but surely, he worked his way out of debt. He paddled, he paddled, he paddled until the milk turned, until the milk turned into cheese or butter, whatever it did. What did Abraham do? Well, interestingly, I'm glad you asked. In Genesis chapter 15, in light of all of this mess, this is what it says. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield, your reward, and very great strength. And then, make some promises to him. And then, verse 6, And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham had spent years accruing a massive debt before God. And in one moment... God says it was counted to him as righteousness, which basically means he was approved before God. 
And Abraham goes on to do some more stupid things. He doesn't learn from the experience with Sarah and Pharaoh because later on, a few chapters later, he does the same thing again with a different earthly ruler that he's intimidated by. So he's not got a good track record before he's declared righteous. And even after he's declared righteous, he's still not got a great track record. The point is, Abraham did not clean up his act. He just believed God. And in believing God, he was declared righteous which basically means God wiped his debt clean and gave him credit to the point that he could for the rest of his life say, I'm in credit with God. Let's paddle down the river because that's what Abraham does. He goes, uh, Paul does, he goes from Abraham, paddle, paddle, paddle. A few hundred years later, we come to David. And David is a man who's a little bit different from Abraham because he had a few things going for him. He writes most of the songs in the Bible. He's a man whose heart is after God. He says that he's a, he's a man with a heart. What is the phrase? Um, what's the phrase? Yeah, thank you. A man after God's own heart. Someone knows it. I'm glad someone knows the Bible. <laughs> he's a man after God's own heart is what it says of David. He is a young boy, takes on this giant Goliath, this kills him in the name of God. As a result, his whole family are saved from captivity to their enemy, and they win a mighty victory. He's got credit with God. He's doing well, right? Well, David also screws it up. He does something very stupid. He commits murder, or he murders the husband of a woman he fancies, so that he can take her as his wife and then have her child. That's not a good way to behave either. And so we've got these two examples, someone who didn't do very well and someone who started well but ended badly. And what does Paul quote? He quotes David in Romans chapter 4 that we read together. And this right here, this is, this is really juicy. And I, These words are the words that changed my life. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one, in verse 6, whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed, this is David speaking now in his psalm, Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I don't know if you've ever been let off something that you've done wrong and you know you've done wrong. Didn't do your homework and the teacher lets you off. Or you did something wrong and the police caught up with you, but you managed to talk your way out of it, weasel your way out of it. It wouldn't happen with you, Dan. I'm sure you would you know, insist on the law being upheld. Dan's a policeman. It's okay. Um, sorry to do that in public. Um, I don't know if you've ever found yourself caught red-handed and you know you're guilty. David knows he's guilty. And yet he says, blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And yet he knows being forgiven by God. When you've been let off something you've done wrong, it produces in you an overwhelming gratitude. These words had a big impact on my life as a, as a young man, really struggling with a lot of habits that were um, ruining my life. I sat there as a Christian saying, God, I'm so worthless. I sin so often. I do wrong so much. And my friend read these words, but instead of the word blessed, he, in, he inserted a word that is a bit more commonplace. He inserted the word happy. Happy are those, which is what the word means, happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Happy is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The word blessed means happy. It also means enlarged, enriched. And I sat there miserable, 
staring at the ground. I'm a worthless, meaningless wretch, God. Struggle with things. Got a foul heart. And yet, David says, happy is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. If you're a Christian, you put your hope in Christ, God has forgiven your sin. He's removed it. And as in the case of Abraham, he's credited righteousness to your account. So he's wiped out your debt and credited you with righteousness. And as a result of that, David could say, when you've understood that, well, a sign that you've understood that is that it affects your face. <laughs> Happy is the man whose sin, the Lord does not count your sin against you. If that doesn't move you to joy, the chances are you either don't understand it or you don't believe it. Or you think you're a higher authority than God because God has declared you forgiven. But I won't declare myself forgiven. How dare I forgive myself because I have done wrong. God has declared you forgiven in Christ. And the juicy nugget of this is those words in between Abraham and David where Paul says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted to him as a gift. Now that makes sense to us. Because when you, you do a job for someone and they give you your money, you don't say, oh, thank you so much. You say, cheers mate, that's mine. I've worked hard for you and you've given me that. I earned it. But Paul says in Christianity it doesn't work like that. Because the wages of yours and my life, the wages of yours and my life, the Bible says, is death. So if you were to stand before God and say, God, give me what I deserve, he would kill you. And so instead, we don't say to God, give me what I deserve. No, Paul says this, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who approves the ungodly, it's that belief that's counted to you as righteousness. Beautiful, big, glorious. Let's move on down our river safari because time's running. We've gone from Abraham back here. Paddle, paddle, paddle. Or down the river to David. Paddle, paddle, paddle. I want to take us to um, Germany in the 16th century uh, and tell you the story of a young German monk named Martin. Now, I have to try my best because this is very exciting, but I tried to share it with someone earlier today and they yawned. It was that exciting for them. So stay with me or come back to me. Let me tell you about Martin. Because Martin Luther, oh, today is a significant day in the church calendar because today is known as Reformation Sunday. Because it is the, the time in our calendar where we remember what happened in 1517 in Germany when a young monk named Martin did something significant. On All Hallows' Eve, on the 31st of October, Martin Luther walked up to the, the, the cathedral door in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed to that door, there he is, um, that's not a photo, um, <laughs> or a painting from the time. Can you imagine? Just stand there, Martin, stand there. Um, anyway, no, carry on. Uh, he, he nails to the door the 95 Thesis, which is basically... 95 concerns or objections that Martin Luther had about the religion of his day, the Christianity of his day. And it was his way of banging something on the door saying, we need to talk, in German. Um, or he saw what was going on in the, in the world at the time and said, this is really wrong. Now, back up, because I wanted to tell you why Martin did what he did and why he chose the day that he chose. He chose All Hallows' Eve. 
And Martin Luther, as a young man, was supposed to be a lawyer. His dad wanted him to go to law school. And then one day, coming home, uh, he was in the middle of a big storm and was terrified. And so he prayed out to the saint. Um, he said to the saint, I can't remember the saint's name. Paul, do you know? Margaret. I think it's St. Margaret. Thanks. I'm just looking at you. Gave me the word Margaret, Paul. Um, he said to St. Margaret, save me, God, through Margaret, because um, they thought God was so holy, we can't talk to God, we have to go through the saints. Anyway, um, save me, God, and if you save me, I'll become a monk. Who hasn't prayed that prayer? Uh, save me, and I'll do this. Save me, and I'll do that. Martin didn't die, and true to his word, he became a monk. But he didn't just become any kind of monk, he became the uber-strict monks, monks from the Augustinian um, practice. And Martin, as a monk, was devout. And he was determined to get right with God because he looked into his heart and he saw sin. He saw his need for approval. He saw that he had a problem and he tried as hard as he could to get right with God. He would confess his sins to a priest daily if they'd let him. He would confess sins that he hasn't even committed yet. He was just thinking, I might do this. I better confess this. He worked as hard as he could to get right with God. What did that produce for Martin? Well, this is what he says in his own words. Um, he says, I, a blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. I did not love, no, rather I hated the just God who punishes sinners. If you're a monk and you hate God, <laughs> you've got a bit of a problem because that's your life is to love him to worship him. And yet Martin hated him. Why? Because he saw that no amount of good deeds could ever approve himself before God because he saw his own heart and he knew how evil it was. And so what Martin did is he, well, the church of his day, and I must be quick, but the church in his day, um, they were using, so he chose All Hallows' Eve, the 31st of October. And why did he do that? Well, All Hallows' Eve comes from a a pagan Celtic festival where worshippers of the Lord of Death used to dress up as deathly things in order to make a sacrifice to that God in disguise. So they disguised themselves from death. In other words, they tried to divert death's attention so they could make a sacrifice or do something to protect their families. Worshippers of the Lord of Death were scared of death and were trying to do something to survive death. The church in Western Europe comes along and takes that festival and says, let's, instead of emphasizing All Hallows' Eve, let's emphasize the next day, All Souls' Day, where we're going to remember those who've survived death and have trusted themselves to God and have been approved by God. So that's what the church was doing. But in the populace, everybody knew they stood condemned before a holy God. The Roman Catholic Church had created this brilliant machine for convincing people they were guilty and selling things to people to try to help them absolve their guilt. So that's what people were doing. And there was one man in particular called Johann Tetzel who used to go all around Germany selling things to people and telling them, if you buy this, it will get your relatives time off for good behavior in purgatory. God will forgive them and pardon them. And if you love your, if you love your loved ones, you should buy this. And then God will bless them and God will bless you. And so Johann Tetzel was selling these things to people around Germany, as was many people in the Roman Catholic Church, to try to convince them, do this and you'll be approved by God. Luther was a monk. He worked as hard as he could, and he saw no amount of good deeds will ever approve you before God. And so on All Hallows' Eve, the time where people were very aware that they were going to die, 
and very aware they needed to do something about it and very aware they needed to buy things. And all Hallows Eve, Martin goes up to the door and says, 999. Germany for no, no, no. German for no, no, no. In case you missed that. We need to talk. There's a problem. Right. Let's move on down the river to our last man. Um, this last week, I had the privilege of going to a church in London on a walking history tour um, that was served for 38 years or more by a man named John Newton. And John Newton was born in 1725, so 200 years on. So we've had Abraham, we've had David, we've had Luther, and now 200 years on, there was John Newton, born in 1725. His mother died two weeks before his seventh birthday, and on his, at age 11, his supposed adopted father figure enrolled him or insisted in him joining the Royal Navy. He became a seaman on the ships. And there was a brutal life for anyone. But John Newton learned to find his feet in that world and became one of the worst of the worst as a Royal Navyman. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, a sailor. And because in his day, a large part of what the Navy was involved with was, the, was in the African-American slave trade. John Newton was out in that part of the world and he was so disliked by his fellow shipmates that when he got sick, rather than caring for him, they just left him at the, at the next port and he was enslaved by the people who lived there for some time. He said he would have died if it wasn't for the kindness of the, the natives that looked after him. John Newton was a man with a foul mouth and a bad temper uh, and a, a massive gambling problem, as well as the fact that he dealt and traded in slaves, human beings. His account was negative, empty, sinful before God. On one occasion, however, on the ship, in the middle of a storm again, he called out to God and said, if you spare him my life, I'll become a follower of yours. And God spared their life in that ship. In fact, on one occasion during the storm, um, John Newton was climbing up onto the upper deck to fetch something, and his captain called him back down. And as he called him back down, someone else took his place on the ladder and went up. And when they opened the hatch, a, a wave blew over the ship and killed him, knocked him over sea and he was uh, overboard and he was never found again. John Newton felt that would have been him if it wasn't just a few seconds before the captain had called him down below. John Newton did, went down below, became a Christian, gave his life to Christ, and then became a, a vicar, a preacher, and also a songwriter. And he understood what it is that Paul's writing about here. You see, when Paul says, is this blessing of forgiveness and grace, is it for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, what he means is, is it for the religious, the Jewish people, or is it for the non-religious, the Romans, writing to the church in Rome? The answer is, well, it depends. When did Abraham get circumcised? Was it before or after he believed? It goes into the detail. But the point is, John Newton is a man who is irreligious, non-religious, a God-hater, called out to God in the middle of a storm and was saved by him. To the point that years later, he wrote a hymn. And he sung the song that we're going to sing in response, Amazing Grace, or we might say, Amazing Gift of God. Amazing Gift of God. How sweet the sound that has saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. As we've gone through the river of history from Abraham to David to Martin Luther to John Newton, 
at every stop along the way, we've seen the same thing, whether in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or the present-ish day, modern times. The message is the same. Salvation is offered as a gift. Your approval before God is offered as a gift and not as a result of your hard work. So it's not a question of paddle, 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 paddle. It's a question of putting up a sail and allowing the grace and love of God to propel you throughout your life. Which if you're not a believer, the invitation's there for you. Stop working. Stop trying to impress him. And trust. Receive by faith the offer of forgiveness from God. But if you're a believer already, the message is equally important. Because you and I, we sometimes only ever come to God when we're feeling like we're being religious or we're feeling like we've got a good track record. Or we don't pray and so we feel guilty. We don't read and so we feel guilty. We don't and so we feel guilty. Yours and my right standing before God is only ever as a result of the free gift of God, the God who justifies the ungodly in his son. We're going to pray together and perhaps the band can join me and we'll sing Amazing Grace. As a, result, as a result and response to God's word this morning.